Hello, my name is Jack, and you're listening to Working in TV. Hey, how's it going? How you all doing? So, today we have another guest, another great guest. We have a uh, sound recordist, James Kenning, guy I've worked with uh, before. I won't say too much about him or about what we talk about, but yeah, it's a really good interview and um, I'll be back at the end to uh, say goodbye. So here we go. Here is James Kenning talking to me about working in TV. My guest today is a sound recordist who's worked on some of the biggest shows in British television, including Top Gear, The One Show, Crime Watch, Great British Menu, and many more. My guest today is James Kenning. How are you, James? I'm good, thank you, Jack. How are you? Yeah, not so bad, not so bad. Um, keeping busy during lockdown? Um, not as busy as I'd like, but uh, yeah, yeah, bits and pieces, mainly sort of just around the house and just kind of yeah. keep my brain sane. Yeah, DIY. Yeah, yeah, got yeah, quite we'll... a bit of making epoxy resin tables, actually. Oh, wow. Well, haven't we all? <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, well, let's jump straight into it then. This, I, I try and ask this same question to everyone. It's a bit of a starter. What is a sound recordist and what do they do? I haven't a clue. Not a clue. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> slightly facetious. But uh, we are the guys with the uh, sort of big fluffy boom mic. Um, and our job is responsible for just getting the sound from any any given situation, whether that be um, you know just a standard setting interview or um, running around after somebody while they do the job, um, up to sort of TV drama and feature films. So it's it's our responsibility for all of the audio aspects of any given project. Okay. So you say our responsibility. So you have a team uh, that works with you. So I'm sure it works differently from different types of uh, shows or productions that you're working on. But typically, how do you how do you like to work? Do you like to work with um, two or three guys? Or how does it work generally? Um, I mean, it, it really does depend on what uh, what type of program you're working on. So um, for something like uh, BBC Horizon that I do that's just myself and a cameraman and a director um, so that's just a relatively small team but then when you're doing something like uh, drama then I would have myself uh, a first assistant sound and if I'm lucky enough then a second assistant as well so then I'm in a, like a little unit of two or three people maybe more um, it just depends on what type of of sound job you're actually doing at the time um but you know from from my point of view the best or the one that i enjoy the most i guess is with when i've got a, a boom operator with me um and then you do sort of become a very tight-knit team just sort of the, the occasional little glance to each other and you know exactly what you're doing so 
it's it's a really intricate little team when it works well yeah do you find that when you have a team it gives you a chance to concentrate on being specific on levels or I'm not really sure how it works if I'm being honest, but you know, like, so if you're on your own, I've seen you with your bag and you, and you're booming as well and all that sort of stuff. Surely that if there's a team, it gives you all a chance to sort of excel at your own specific part. What do you think? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the one thing that kind of niggles me is that there's a sort of on the production side of things, there seems to be this um, feeling that, if I need a boom operator, for instance, they can say, "Oh, we just we'll, we'll give the boom to a um, to a runner," and you th- yeah. it's actually it's actually one of the most intricate jobs on set. Yeah, um, so yeah, it, can be, it can get it can get an expensive thing if you have a runner dipping the boom the into shot every five seconds. Yeah, yeah, <clears> yeah, and it, it's. Um, it, make, it makes a massive difference when you've got somebody that knows what they're doing against somebody that doesn't know what they're doing, you know? Yeah. Um, you're, you're right in as much as it it allows me to sort of be creative with what we're doing and how we're getting the sound and what, you know, additional things. It, it, it kind of just frees your mind to be, as I say, creative um, and, and do your job properly. You know, there's there's a reason why there's a boom up. There's a reason why there's a mixer. There's a reason why there's an assistant. Um, but I think sometimes in the industry today that gets forgotten, which is, yeah. it's a shame really. It is, it is, but it's, it's, yeah, it's usually the same reasons and the same people asking the same questions as to why do we need this, <laughs> but it all yeah. boils, it all boils down to money really. But yep. I guess what you're saying is the more time you have to devote to each individual part of the aspect of capturing sound, the higher the quality end product you're going to be. Because obviously, yeah, a runner with a boom isn't going to know to to, twi- to twist from one to the other and to and to know that the, the, the microphone is directional and all this kind of yeah, stuff. I mean, exactly. these are just things I've heard sound mixers and sound recorders yeah, yeah. say. I don't know I mean, these things, I've just heard them, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it, it's, it comes down to the intricacies of, you know, knowing if I place my microphone there within the shot, the shadows that are coming from either the light source or the sun, can that be hidden behind the person? You know, if I move my mic from left to right, is that going to, is the shadow then going to come across somebody's face? And then also to then be able to look at the cameraman, the camera operator or person, and look at them and know what shot they're on. So if they're on a zoom lens, for instance, you're not always sure about what they're doing, but just the intricacies of, you know, if the camera's angled slightly down a bit, chances are they're on a big wide shot. So you have to adjust your microphone accordingly. Or, you know, if they're pointed slightly up and away from somebody, then chances are they're on a tight shot of them and you can sort of crash in and get the frame. So it's a, it's a bit of a dance really between. Yeah, that's the word. that all comes from knowledge and from, you know, just doing it really. You have to learn it on the job because you have to adjust as the camera adjusts, especially if it's handheld or like you're saying, big wires and things you need to, you need to have one eye on what you're recording and one eye on what they're recording kind of thing as the camera. Yes. Guy. Yeah. Yeah. And then one eye on your mixer to make sure your levels aren't getting shot, but oh, there's yeah. a certain, there's a certain sort of intricacy there where you start to correlate what you're hearing to what's happening on the mixer. So you don't, necessarily have to watch 
so much you know in the very early years i was constantly looking at my um yeah the meat the meters on my recorder um but as you get more experience you you correlate as i say what you're hearing to what's happening on the on the dials on the mixer so yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of like a musician who knows if his guitar is out of tune or whatever. You can start yeah. to hear it as you play or as you yeah, record. Yeah. You you can hear you hear what's happening and you know, oh, there's too much gain or there's not enough or there's this, there's that. Again, you know, gain and words like that are words that I've just heard sound mixers say. <laughs> so I'd like to chuck them in. Yeah, yeah, it's, right, it's fine. I, I, I've heard them say it as well. <laughs> yeah, did I did I get away with that one? <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> uh, funny um but yeah the thing about uh amount of crew and stuff it, it seems to be the thing i mean i we hear it in prop department as well and as budgets get stressed especially now i imagine in the next few months as budgets get stretched uh squashed and it's frustrating really because like you said you, you said the key sentence there you said these people are there for a reason and it's not we're not just trying to get our mates work and you know sometimes we do get our mates work but it's not just helping people out like they need to be there because there's a process yeah. of making TV. And I've learned this over the years. Like there isn't really a shortcut because you think it's a shortcut now when you do it, but then, you know, a day later you realize, Oh no, this is going to cause this problem. And we haven't got this now yeah. because of this. And there's basically, there's no way to cheat experience of having and manpower. It's just, you know, that's what it is. And it's, it's funny how every job, like, it goes the same way, really. It's like, especially in drama, like I mainly do drama these days, if I ever work at all, you know. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's the same conversations about people saying, well, production manager coming up to someone, HOD, and saying, well, why do we need this? And it's like, well, this is because that, that's it. That's what we need. It's not very rarely. Do you, exactly. Very rarely do you guys ever have to ha ever try and get more than you need. Like I've never seen it one because you don't need the hassle of having extra people and all this stuff and finding things to do but it's just that's the bare minimum of what you need to do to, to deliver your to deliver your work to the standard that they require and that you require yeah. i mean any any time they start whittling crew down or personnel down everything and that means the whole job if they start whittling one person down in one department everything then has a knock-on effect and it becomes a compromise yeah, because because that work still needs to happen. That the, yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah their, their their responsibility doesn't disappear; it just goes onto aggregate Somebody of else. other people. Yeah, yeah. So you know, the the first AD is still going to need to get you know seven or eight pages done a day. That hasn't changed. No, but you know, then corners start getting cut, um, and ultimately, then you, you know, I hate to bring the term up, but it then does become at some point a, a health and safety issue. Yeah, I, think I, I that, know I've, I've been on jobs with you where you've we've gone, you know, holy moly, what's going on? You know, we're, we're now seriously compromised. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Like, and it took me a long time. I think when we worked together, I was just at that point where I was just about experienced enough to go, no, let's just not do that. And maybe you heard me uh, yeah, on yeah, that yeah. quite a few times, but I'm like, hold on, let's just take a minute here because I know we've got lots to do, but are you really saying that we should do that because it's probably not the safest thing to do? Let's maybe yeah. just think about another way. And, you know, there, there's a, I think you're right. There's a lot of that, like, especially when you cut crew and you cut corners and you cut everything. Yeah. Safety it does tend to be the first thing that gets compromised. What was your first job in 
I'll say in the industry because I won't say TV because I'm, you know, TV is a different thing. Yeah, but yeah, so what was your first job in sound recording? So my first job was as a runner for a uh, West End dubbing studio called Magmasters. Um, and they were basically doing the dubs for um, TV adverts at the time and uh, the occasional feature film. So I think I was I was present when we did the pre-dub for uh, Thelma and Louise. Oh, wow. So, so we spent the whole sort of two weeks um, doing doing the pre-dub, and I was ill on the final day. So that classic scene, right at yeah. the end of Thelma and Louise, I, the day before we got up to the point where they stopped in the car, just oh, wow. before they started to drive off the cliff. And oh, my God. Out, it didn't actually get released for another what, two or three years after we did that. Really? So I never, I never actually got to see the end because I was off ill the following day. So I never knew what happened, <laughs> and, no, and no, nobody at work would tell me what happened. And they were like, "Oh, that's cruel." It was. It was really cruel. So when you I had to, got to see it, I was like, "Oh no!" Three-year literal cliffhanger. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> Spoiler there for anyone who's not seen it, but you know, it's 30, 40 years old. So, yeah, no. um, oh, that's funny. Well, um, so where, where, where was that? Was that London? So that was in St. Anne's Court in West End. So just between Wardour Street and Dean Street. Okay. What, uh, what, what year would that have been? Just because my, that was 1988. So wow. I left, I left school in 1988. And at that time, there was a, uh, there was still a thing called the Central London Careers Office. Um, and the sort of all the main sort of TV companies or ad- advertising companies would um, send all their jobs there. Okay. So then that got l- luckily posted to our school. And then I, I kind of went straight in and had an interview from there and, and got the job as a runner. Wow. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. So that was in 88 and, you know, not to yep. make you feel too old, but that was, <laughs> that was the year I was born. But anyway, we'll move on from that. We'll move on from that very quickly. <laughs> so you've been in, so that means you've been in TV 32 years, just my entire <laughs> life. <you know? laughs> I know I'm young. I'm a young man. Yeah. And a boy, and a boy. <laughs> I'm a young man with incredibly grey hair. That's what working in the TV has done that to me. Um, so my next question is: How has the technology changed since you began working in sound? Wow, that's a biggie. Uh, yeah. So back then, we were working on 35 mil film uh, in the dubbing studio. So basically. Uh, the same type of film that you would put in a 35mm camera was used to record audio. So then uh, out the back of the dubbing studio, there would be eight or ten machines that you used to load up with 35mm mag, um, and then that would have the sound recorded onto it. So all of the spot effects. So we used to get, um, for instance, for an advert, the editor would come in uh, with all the dialogue recorded on. So one piece of dialogue would be recorded on one piece of tape. Uh, another line of dialogue would be on a separate piece of tape and then the effects, um, any atmospheres or anything like that would be uh, loaded then onto each separate individual machine. 
and then that would get sent through to the mixing desk and then they would mix it as you would normally normally do but the point was that every individual piece of sound was on a piece of 35 mil film so so these these bits of sound because in adverts i imagine it's smaller pieces of sound yeah. so you're talking about and listeners can't see what i'm doing here but i'm holding my fingers up to, to for a measurement are you talking about like pieces of tape about yay long kind of thing or and 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 because obviously i'm not i've i'm a digital i've grown up in the digital age and i've not i've never worked on anything analog or anything at all like that or film or anything yeah so you so and for the younger listeners as well you 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 had to you have to physically in those days you had to physically cut pieces of tape out of things and put them onto the other onto other things on yeah, top so, of each other. so what would happen so, so say for instance you had a 30 second advert yeah so a 30 second advert in terms of um length of the piece of film would be a given length yeah so mm -hmm. the actual pictures of it would be 30 seconds long so all of the audio tracks have to be 30 seconds long so that would get made up of um a film tape that didn't have anything on it until that particular piece of audio that they needed came in to the picture so at that point on the sort of unrecorded piece of film you would then cut in the piece of film that had the recorded information on it okay tape it together so that but then but then everything had to be in sync so everything ran at the same speeds um and uh, the the editors used to come in and they had they obviously then had to make sure that the sound was in the right position for the picture if that makes yeah. sense yeah, yeah of course to explain without sort of <laughs> visuals without drawing a diagram yeah 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 yeah, yeah. it is but, fascinating though because it's it's not that long ago and no, no, no. that that thing that kind of stuff just does it happen at all still or is it very much like a, a vintage okay. kind of i wouldn't have thought that still happens i mean the main reason i uh i got made redundant from there in 1991 and that was because of the ad that was the very very beginning of the digital switchover okay so there was um just trying to think of the name of the machine but anyway there was basically a digital file based system that started coming in and that basically made us loading up um 35 mil mag film with audio on it that kind of yeah. made us pretty much redundant overnight okay so how was that how was that time for you personally did it did it i mean i mean of course it forced you to 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 learn digital but were you were you pessimistic or optimistic about the industry from your point of view at that point when it was changing over? Um, I mean, it's funny because the the digital transition at that point was only happening in the post-production side. Okay. So after I left uh, Magmasters in uh, 91, I then had a sort of six, seven-month period out in the wilderness selling vacuum cleaners but that's a completely <laughs> separate story um, yeah we'll, we'll cover that another week yeah yeah um and then when i got back into the industry in the production side of things so i got a job with a company that was providing all the tv equipment for 
uh, you know, every program from Blue Peter right the way across to sort of um, commercials. Um, but on that side of the industry, things hadn't started to go digital from a sound point of view at that time. So we were still okay. recording, we were still recording directly two tracks onto the cameras. I see. So, so when did when did digital recording, you know, live recording? When did that uh, start to emerge? Timescales. I'm a little bit foggy on that one. Okay. Uh, I would say probably early 2000s. I would think. Okay. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, but up until that point, as I say, most of the most of the sort of location recording was done either directly onto camera or on uh, DAT machines. Okay. So it was recorded physically, and then you, from what you said there, it was edited and converted in post into digital. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, okay. I mean, the DAT machine was kind of the first digital tape recorder, if that makes sense. It was still a physical tape. Okay. Um, but it was recording digitally. Digital physical. Yeah, it did. Nice, nice. nice. <laughs> that should be a T-shirt, digital physical. <laughs> I'm sure there's a sound mixer on set somewhere with that t-shirt. <laughs> Sadly, yes. <laughs> you guys are known for your t-shirts. <laughs> or were you working at all when uh the lockdown came in? Yeah, so I was supposed to be doing uh some filming over in the UK for neighbors. They come across they try to come over to the UK once a year okay. from a storyline point of view and that they were coming over for a four-day job, so we had two days in London, and then we were popping over to Ireland for two days as well. And that was, yeah, that was my my next job. And then lockdown hit, and they they pulled out pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. I was I haven't mentioned this to anyone before. Actually, I was going to work on an Indian production, and they were they were coming oh, wow. to London. I know it was it was going to be quite. Fair. It wasn't Bollywood or anything like that. It was like a like a emotional drama kind of thing, but they, they were scheduled to come for two weeks to London. And it was my first job for a long while, actually, because I, I got married at the back end of last year and I kind of took a bit of time off because you know what it's like working, you work, yeah. working in the summer in drama. It's pretty much summer. You work in the summer yep. and then you don't work until March, April again. <laughs> so I'd, I'd kind of done my summer and it was September. I got married in October and I was like, okay, cool. I'll take a bit of time and then that's fine. And then, so yeah, I haven't worked since October. So it's, yeah. I had that in, that job from the Indian production and yeah, I went to visit my parents in France and then the lockdown happened while I was in France and then, oh, wow. which was pretty crazy because they were locked down a week before us. That's right, um, yeah. And then, yeah, I got the call about the job and I was like, ah, oh, geez, because <laughs> they were like, we we just can't get, can't get to you from India. No, so no. it just didn't even, it was, it was a non-star. No, it's funny you should say about that because I, I had a really good sort of, September, October, November, which was great. You know, I was really, really busy. Yeah. That was for BBC Horizon. And then December hit and the work disappeared. Yeah. And then in January, I was thinking there's not much coming up. So I'd, I've been putting off having um, uh, operations on my knee to uh, cut some oh, okay. dodgy old cartilage out. Yeah. Um, so I thought, right, I'll get that done in January, which I did. And I think, you know, by the end of January, I should be fine and up and working yeah. by the beginning of February. But then February was really, really quiet. And yeah. things just started to happen towards the end of February, beginning of March. I thought, great, it's picking up. Yeah, it really was 
the worst timing. I mean, <laughs> yeah, obviously, it obviously, it's horrible, and you know, people are dying, and it's it's an awful thing to happen. But in terms of timing for the TV industry, especially for drama, it yeah. really could not have been a worse week because we had all survived winter and spring. I mean, for anyone who doesn't know, pretty much, t- yeah, TV is kind of dormant in the winter just for for light reasons, yeah. really, for you know, for weather conditions and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, yeah, like March, April is kind of when it all kicks off again. And yeah, for us, for that to happen, it really meant that we were all depleted <laughs> for like, yeah, yeah. for everything really for like, we'd spent so much time at home and we'd got, you know, all yeah, the yeah, things exactly. with that, you kind of <laughs> happy to get back to work as it were. And financially, I know a lot of us are still struggling, obviously, but yeah, we were all kind of like, okay, cool, you know, we've kind of got to the end of our reserves, as it were. So the, yeah, yeah. it sounds crazy, but that it just is how it works, isn't it, really? And yeah, every year, is, exactly. every year we all we all try and say the same thing to ourselves. Oh, well, next year is not going to be the same. It's not going to be so hard for me at the winter. I'm going to try and save or I'm going to try and come up with something else to do. But then inevitably it ends up being. But so, yeah, it was, it was real kind of like, oh, my God, what's going to happen now? Because there's going to be no film. It would have been really interesting to see what would have happened if lockdown had happened maybe two or three weeks later. Yeah. I think many of us would have been on jobs already and yeah. the jobs would have been committed to. So in effect, once lockdown lifted, we would have, we would have had a job to come back to. Yeah. And but- also it would have helped with, um, would have helped with anyone PAYE as well for furlough reasons and stuff, because yeah. there's a lot, I mean, this is a, this is another conversation maybe for another day, but there's a whole thing yes, in TV about freelancers with self-employed and PAYE statuses. And there's a, there's a whole campaign about the forgotten PAYE freelancers and all this stuff. And I'll put a link in this show. I'll put a link to some articles. Yeah, about I'm, I'm part of that as well. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, well then, yeah, tell you what, let, let's maybe let's talk about that. So what have you been doing uh, towards that? Um, I mean, it, to be honest, it's mainly just, trying to get the message out there banging the drum you know it's through no fault of our own the way that the industry has required us to be set up i.e in my instance a limited company um we get absolutely zero support whatsoever um so all i've been doing is basically emailing my mp who is as useful as a chocolate teapot um name and shame james name uh, and shame Claire Coutinho <laughs> in Tandridge. Useless. There you go, Claire. Claire, step it up. Come on. Yeah. People need um, you. No empathy whatsoever. And just, no. spouting, just spouting that, oh, we've done this, we've done that, we've done this. That's yeah, the thing. Great. That great. Seems done to that. Be... It hasn't helped me at all. Yeah, exactly. You've done all this other stuff that's completely unrelated to it. Yeah. That seems to be the thing that really that I'm seeing a lot is that people are just, uh, they're just getting zero sympathy for the fact that they are pretty soon destitute because they have zero income yeah they have all this you know because like i mentioned before we speculate to accumulate and all this kind of thing we have uh, and yourself and me included we have a lot of equipment we have a lot of overheads kind of thing and suddenly to not be able to work and i mean from my point of view i've been self-employed not limited company so i've kind of managed to barely scraped by during this i'm mean, yeah, having yeah. to do this to, to give myself a potential chance at another revenue and you know also yeah, to yeah. keep my mind active but yeah but limited companies and the, the just the lack of empathy because you guys just there's just nothing it's no i mean we, it, the thing that bugs me the most is that we've been portrayed as a bunch of uh 
money grabbing yeah non-tax paying people but in reality the difference between myself as a limited company and somebody who's a freelancer is yeah. about two thousand pounds which if you take into consideration we don't get um holiday pay we don't get sick pay two thousand pounds does you know if i if i've got no. two weeks off of work two thousand pounds as a as a tax-free dividend does not cover no it doesn't even cover a week of no, it doesn't. not being employed but and the the other thing is that it's not through our fault that we're limited companies yeah exactly it's how we get work it's how the industry prefers us to be yeah that's the real kicker because that they've created this problem for you essentially because mm-hmm. it, if it was left to you then you would probably you, you probably wouldn't do it this way and you'd have other ways to do it and therefore you know you'd have help from the government which it's it's very bizarre and i d- i don't understand and i don't think the government understands uh freelancers in this maybe other industries they understand it more but in tv they they really cannot and i've had conversations with um hmrc about this on the phone about tax and things and they they, they really cannot understand how you if you're and, and i'm talking about PAYE now for a second like if you if you work for a company as PAYE, they think that you work for that company and that is your job. Like you, you work for them, but they don't realize that PAYE short-term contracts, there's millions of people doing this and they don't, it's just not something they're aware of. Like no. they must be because th- they're issuing, they must be issuing P45s by the dozen for people in a year. And they, I don't know how they can't understand that that is a way to work and people need, they need help because it doesn't work for them in any way. Being PAYE on short-term contracts, you get nothing. You get no advantages. You can't declare anything. You must it's, be constantly on emergency tax codes anyway. They are, yeah. I mean, I don't do that. I do self-employed, but yeah, but I think they are. And, and they're constant. Everyone I've ever, and most people on TV sets are, I think, on PAYE because there's specific rules. Like the government say that if you don't have your own equipment and or to a certain amount, like production managers always ask me on every job I do, they say, oh, we need a kit list of £5,000 or more and we need to know this, this and this. Otherwise, you have to go as PEYE, even though this job could be halfway through my year and Mm. completely ruin my tax and have to explain everything when I do my thing. I just don't understand it. And I mean, also, if you take someone like the BBC... They yeah. will only employ somebody for nine months because after that, yeah. then I'm a proper. You, you, they have to be paye. So, yeah, it, we're in this situation because it's convenient for companies like the BBC and ITV. It's convenient for them. It's a way of them not paying as much for people to do the work. Yeah, it's it, it comes down to them not having to pay us uh, national insurance and do all this kind of stuff and to give us holiday and to give us the rights and protections that everyone else gets really. And it's, it's all for their benefit. Yeah. I would say the whole industry is set up in this way. So it's very rare that you get a staff job. I don't, I don't know that there are probably staff jobs anymore. I mean, at, at the sort of the higher production side of things, but this yeah. term, from our side of the industry, Jack, I don't think yeah. there's, that there isn't any. So we no. have to be self-employed. We have to be limited companies. There's no other option. Yeah. And with that comes, we all have to be our own accountants. We all have to be our own PR department. We all have to be everything. And I think that's another thing that people don't realize. When you run your own limited company, you are the company. You 
on your yeah. own. So I think people that go from jobs being employed and then going to be limited, their own limited company, they suddenly realize, oh my God, I can't call, there's no one else to help me with this. I have to figure it out. And you end up just losing money because you don't know things, which yeah, is, exactly. it's a fast learning curve because you have to. But yeah, I think at the moment, I think TV in that sense is broken and people it, are suffering. Yeah, no, I think they, 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 there needs to be post- this situation yeah. in lockdown, there needs to be a good look at how the industry works. And I, you know, I've spent most of lockdown battling this and I, I don't know the answer. Um, all I know is that what is coming from the government is going to smack us really hard. Yeah. And I personally think there's going to be a massive brain drain within the industry. I think you know, I'm sorry to say this for your listeners, but I, th I think there's going to be a massive brain drain. People are going to leave the industry. Yeah, I agree. I think, yeah, I think when you look at it from, yeah, you look at it from that side, the quality of everything is going to go down because everyone's going to be less experienced because people are going to try and come in, chance their arm and try and step up and do all this kind of stuff. It might be good for some people, but yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're going to lose a lot of professional experienced people. And just just the mental health of people is going to be, incredibly affected by this because yeah, it's, mean, not, well, it's not healthy to have to fight yeah. this long just to survive yeah no it's it's not uh, i think that's going to be probably the the biggest impact yeah. after lockdown is going to be the mental health of people because the, the the forums that i'm on yeah people are you know i mean we're we're, we're talking people down from committing suicide no, I agree. I've, I mean, I've not done that myself, but I've, I've, I've read the messages and I've seen people quite literally crying with their words of, you know, f their fathers and mothers and people mm. that just cannot support their family. And it's, it's not the th the, the problem is, and I don't want to get too political about it, really, but it's a choice for the government to do this. It's not. There's not. It, there is something they can do. Yeah, do you know what is. I mean? It, it's not like a tornado came and loads of people lose their job. They can do something if they want to. And they, it's, they're it's, choosing a political, it's a political systematic decision to exclude yeah. us from help. It is that simple. It yeah, is. is a very, for them to say that they can't, I mean, this is just being selfish from my point of view, is it my yeah. situation? The fact that they can't work out how many, how much dividends I pay myself. Yeah. Um, it is appalling, you know, uh, my but how can they not you've you've been yeah, giving them that information for years yeah yeah and and just to just to clarify the fact that i'm paying dividends is not 100 percent not a tax dodge no it is because we've said it earlier in in this chat that our work and our income is so sporadic and so yeah. seasonal that i can't guarantee that i'm going to have enough money in my bank account to pay myself yeah. Exactly. a wage in december no, january no. february just when i earn nothing no exactly that and, and that's how yeah that, that's the misconception i think that's what's got kept the government uh being addressed on this by the public in general is that misconception that limited companies are tax dodgers and that's just it's just not true for one and to and to to, to accuse people of that itself is feels like a criminal act do you know what i mean because yeah. it's if we did that, if if limited companies didn't pay tax and they just took the money out and just said screw you to the taxman, they would be in jail. They would be in prison. 
they would not be heads of limited companies. So for anyone who is the head of a limited company, has been for years, is obviously not doing that because they would yeah. have been stopped. So that's just an argument that needs to just die and go yeah. away. And then we can just, and I think that is why they get away with it, the government, because they're not being challenged by, there's not a, the hearts and minds of this thing is not with the limited companies, it's with the government. And they seem to be yeah. just coasting along on that. But the, but the, I mean, the final point on it, I guess, is it's a tax system that's been set up by the government. So we're not yeah. breaking any rules. No, exactly. That's it as well. We're having to dance their dance. And then because we're doing their dance, they're saying, you don't get anything. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's, anyway. it's a swindle. Yes. Moving <laughs> anyway, on before, before yeah. people turn off. <laughs> <laughs> Two grumpy men moan yeah, about yeah, tax. <laughs> what a podcast that is. <laughs> um, my next question is, have you worked during this thing have you done anything days here and there on anything during the new normal the new normal yes i did a two day three day job on a pilot for a new game show okay um and it was interesting just from a term of how you can work in a big team yeah and social distance and that in itself i think is almost impossible what we do um yeah. just to because i mean you know the the pace that we normally work at is quite frantic and quite yeah you know in your face isn't it it's always you know move 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 yeah. but in order to social distance everybody has to slow right down so you know whereas i would be around a camera setting up my audio stuff at the same time that they're tweaking lenses and doing now that can't happen no, so there's, so there's whole, an order, yeah. There's a whole order of things that has to be yeah. followed. But then that comes back to the production company and the, the exec producers and the producers. Do, can they allow that time to happen? Yeah. Um, and there was a, because it was a pilot and then we, yeah, we pushed for time, there was a certain element of, well, no, we can't do that. Yeah. So there were, you know, rules broken at that point, which to me was a bit i could see why it was happening and there's a part of my brain that is okay with that happening but then there's another part of me thinking moving forward from this point we can't do this this is not sustainable yeah that's the uh, as soon as all these uh, new rules and new ways of working because i read the the report that came out and all the guidelines and everything like i'm sure you did and the first thing i'd noticed was that just how long everything's going to take and the one thing you don't do in TV production is take long, uh, take no. a long time to do anything. And that's your first rule. It's an instinct based job. You have to be prepared. You have to know what's going to happen next. You have to know what you're doing there and what this person's doing. And you have to squeeze in and tweak something because yeah. if you wait your turn, then they're waiting on you. And my rule in TV is don't let them be waiting on you. And yeah, that's, that's on, that's on my website. I, I never yeah. want to hear waiting for sound. So you're exactly. always thinking, you know, mm. the next step ahead, what's going to happen next? I'm going to preempt it. Yeah. And there, there's a couple of things to this because that's a, that's, that's our instincts and we've trained ourselves to be, and that's what makes us, that's a part of what makes us good at our job, being able to do things without anyone noticing and getting it done so they can just roll straight from this to that without yeah. going, okay, this, 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 and then this. So you just, you, you crack on with it. And that instinct is probably going to take 
from their side as well to expect it and from our side to to do it it's going to take a long time to break the habit yeah i think yeah yeah yeah. i mean you know i've I've seen you work and you work the same way as i do that you know the first ad will say can you do this and then you just look at them and say i've already done it yeah exactly that's that's how you and i normally work yeah and i think there's there's a real mindset change that is going to have to happen and i don't know how that's going to happen yeah but for the the first ad or depending on what type of thing you're working on to sort of say they need that time they need that time and you can't intermix yeah so it's it's going to be really tough i think yeah i think it i think as much as it's going to be tough for for the shooting crew like the technical departments and everything you know us guys but i mean yeah the the assistant directors are going to it really just adds way more work for them because as much as they schedule the shoot the shots and the locations and all that kind of stuff they suppose they're going to have to like in a micro level schedule the actual exact you know order of things and and there's there's politics that come with that as well if if the order of something is so specifically weighed to one department which we all know which that department would be so if it's yeah. yeah so if it's weighed to that department then if they overrun, then it squeezes you. And it may, it means that if you're at the back of that queue, but it will, but inevitably like squeeze time always leads to problems and, or arguments and friction. And again, the mental health side of things. Yeah. Yeah. I think that comes down to the, the confidence of your first AD. I mean, there's one that I've worked with and he always gives people time. Yeah. So be, I'll be really interested to see how he approaches things and how yeah. things will change under his quite laid back regime. You know, it's, it, it's, and his way of working is very, very efficient. Yeah. Well, there you go. That, that that gives me hope that there are people that can do that, but it does seem from my experience that it's a reactionary industry and especially the AD. I mean, I love the ADs. I used to be one, um, but they're, they're constantly going at 100 miles an hour and if they have to suddenly stop and then wait and you can see them in the corner you know pulling their hair out because someone's taking too long but it's it doesn't for me it doesn't sound like tv is going to be a lot of fun for quite a while at least no i think and and, unless and again this has got to come from the top you know this has got to come from the execs and the producers you know when they were pushing for 10 to 15 pages of dialogue a day i think that's going to have to come down to seven or eight yeah i think that's the inevitable the inevitable thing that needs to shift is just the, it's the volume of work really isn't it yeah whether it will or not it's a different matter isn't it do you prefer entertainment tv commercials or drama i prefer drama i think okay over everything um drama first and then documentaries oh okay that's not something i've even Sorry thought to ask you about what um just off the top of your head some highlights from your documentary days um documentaries i guess would be um horizon of course so the bbc horizon stuff have been so much fun and pleasure to work on yeah um we did one recently about the hubble uh space telescope which i think is on currently available on iplayer okay yeah anything for the bbc science department they still employ the right amount of people, yeah. Um, and they, you know, you, we get access to some incredible things. I mean, uh, 
did one about the 30th anniversary of the uh, moon landings. Oh, okay. So we were over in NASA in the States. Oh, here we go. Yeah, this sounds good. Lots of incredible, incredible people to meet and places to see. Charlie, we got to sit, we got to meet Charlie Duke, who was the, the astronaut that um, he was Capcom on the uh, moon landing. Oof. So he's the one, he's the, he was the astronaut that was speaking to Neil Armstrong. Oh, wow. So we got to meet and he was, yeah, amazing, amazing people to meet. Yeah. If you're into space, <laughs> that's pretty. Yeah, I know. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm. I love space. I'm a big uh, fan of space. I listen to a lot of um, space-related uh, podcasts and stuff like that. But yeah, if you're into space, to go to places like that, meet people like that, that must be incredible. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very special, special time. It's got to be the best part of the job, and I think it is for me as well. Is going to interesting places and meeting interesting people that you, that you would have absolutely no right to be involved with in your, yeah. in your life yeah. as it as it should be as our lives should be as normal people we should never interact with these people but somehow through luck and coincidence we managed yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we managed to get there and yeah and then when you, you when you're with them it's just like it's some it's more than like you know meeting actors and famous people it's great but when you meet interesting people, real people yeah real people that do very interesting things and things you wouldn't normally get to do i find it just incredible yeah, there was a, there was a guy that we met for the Hubble uh, telescope. Yeah, uh, Horizon a guy called Story Musgrave. Great name. And what a character! Oh yeah, I mean a complete psycho loony, and there's no way I'd want to be cramped up in a spaceship for seven days with him. But, <laughs> I mean, a lovely bloke, but just so out there. Yeah, know, so completely. I mean, away with the fairies, but in a good way. Yeah, you you've probably got to have a little bit of that about you to be involved in strapping yourself to a rocket and shooting you know what i mean that's pretty much what he said <laughs> yeah i mean you don't probably don't want well, well-mannered kind of normal rational people you want you need people that are willing to do i mean because all these guys started out as test pilots right so yeah, yeah. they're lived you know by the seat of their pants as it, as it were and then when the uh, space thing came along naturally who were, who are you going to employ the people who <laughs> the people who have been strapping themselves to rockets and flying yeah <laughs> Just moving on slightly so we don't just talk about space yeah, yeah. for the next 45 minutes. Um, is there anything in the industry that you haven't done that you want to do in the future, like maybe a genre or working with a certain people or a certain show? Um, I guess the, the the pinnacle for someone like me, although I think I've probably missed my chance now, would be to work on a, a Bond film. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm not at that level of... of uh, in the right circles to, to sort of get there. But that, that was always a, a, a dream to work on a bond. Okay. Film. But as I say, that's, that's a no starter. I think <laughs> it is interesting how, because it's all, I've I had this discussion with Richard drew last week. And it's interesting how we do get into our own little circles and things in this industry. And somehow some people end up in the film circle and they, they move in those groups. And then some yeah, people yeah, end up yeah. in entertainment TV even though it's kind of all the same, really, at the end of the day, when you strip it all back to its bare bones, it's 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 for you. It's recording the same things that you would be recording, no matter whether it's live TV or film or anything. But it does seem to be that those circles move that way, and then these circles move that way. Why do you think? Why do you think that happens? I think there's a certain element if you get pigeonholed. I guess um, I can remember when I um, when I went freelance in '97. Um, I started doing a, 
a show called Dream Team, which was a drama for Sky One about football. I remember watching uh, that. Yeah, yeah. And then my background up until that point had been light entertainment um, and documentaries. And I can remember there was a certain snobbery yeah. amongst the rest of the crew that I was coming on as a to start with as a boom op and then as a production mixer. Yeah. And I think it is just purely a bit of snobbery. Yeah. Um, in the sort of the fly on the wall documentary stuff that I was doing, it set me up really well to go onto a drama set. Yeah. Which may sound, you know, that I'm sure people doing drama will cock their nose at that comment. But basically in the, in the fly on the wall documentary stuff, you've got one chance to get it right. Yeah. Whereas on a drama set, you've got more time to think how you're going to approach something. You know, it's a slight different set of rules, but if you learn those rules, yeah, then, you know, you'll, you'll excel. And that's kind of what I really enjoyed was the the space and the time to be creative with how you're going to achieve a end result. Yeah. Um, and Dream Team a really good learning curve because although it was you did have that space, it was still so quick. The turnaround was ridiculously quick. Yeah. So you, you, the, my background in the documentary side paved the way really well for the dream team thing because we still had to get it pretty much on the first take. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with you about the the snobbery thing because I've I've heard that and I've seen that in from my side because I find that it really should be the opposite way around because if you've if you've been brought up in in the drama you know in drama and stuff you you yeah like you said you have more time and you don't. You're not as well drilled, I find, on being quick and being innovative. And I, because I started out in kids' TV, we had no, we had no money, we had no time to do anything. So, especially with art department stuff, and I started out as an AD in kids' TV. I, I learned about how to schedule things really efficiently because we just had no chance otherwise, and we couldn't come back and we couldn't go. Do you know what I mean? We had like three goes at anything. We got really super slick at everything. And then when I started moving into more like, you know, mid-level drama TV, you know, Sunday night stuff, I started to realize, oh, now I can start, I can start finessing and I can start growing the quality of my work rather than just like yep. fighting fires, 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 fires everywhere. So I feel like that was a great learning curve. And I would recommend anyone starting out, maybe if you can, I mean, getting a job starting out is hard enough as it is, but if you can, it's yeah, not yeah. such a bad thing, maybe not to go exactly where you want to end up straight away, especially if you want to end up in the big features and the big, you know, dramas and stuff, because you'll hone your craft in these lower budget, higher octane, less time. And then when you, sh by the time you show up to dramas, everyone else who's been relaxed into dramas for years, you know, you'll seem like super on it and you'll be you'll know 15 ways to do something that they wouldn't even need to think about i i could yeah, yeah exactly. i could not agree with you more on that and i've seen it they i've seen it like with especially when i was starting out with runners runners in films they don't get to do anything there's no, they, they do no. nothing they'll they'll maybe lock off something but a runner in a kids tv show you could be holding the camera any minute <laughs> do you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like I've recorded shots on TV shows that are on Netflix. Do you know what I mean? Like as a runner, I did that. And I've done art department stuff when I had no business doing it just because there was no one else to do it. And someone was like, Jack, step in, you know, step in, let's do it. Yeah, I think that you, you can go from sort of the, the documentary and bits TV type side of things to drama. Yeah. I think the move from for somebody that's only done drama back to doing something like yeah 
documentaries or is a more difficult transition to make. I think you're right. Because as you said, you know, you, you hone your skill set doing the documentaries, doing the, the, the lower end stuff. Um, but I think it would be far more difficult if somebody went in directly at the sort of the top end of it and then tried to fall back. I think yeah. it's, it's, it would not be a good transition. No, I think you're right. I think in, you know, this is not to knock anyone in drama or anyone in film because obviously, no, no, obviously they not. do exactly a great job because that's why they get those jobs. But I do see it. I, I see the fact that in drama and film, there's very specific demarcation of job from every department. And when I was working in kids TV, there wasn't, there just wasn't that everything was mucking in. Everyone was helping out because there was so there's little crew and, you know, you're all kind of helping each other out. So I imagine what happens when people go from drama, say if they do a couple of days on a kids show or a documentary or whatever, they'll just suddenly realize, oh crap. Okay. Yeah. There's not a locations department. <laughs> There's not. This. You are the location yeah, department. exactly. You have to find your own parking space, <laughs> you know, all this kind of stuff. And then you suddenly realize, oh, yeah. So now I have to be a bit more, okay, a bit more on it. It's kind of comparable to the being employed and being self-employed kind of thing that we were talking about earlier. You you suddenly become the whole company. You have to do it all yourself. Yeah. You can't just rely on other people to do their job. Yeah, it's more of a tight-knit team, isn't it? It's a more yeah. of a, you know we're all in this together as opposed to that's your department. This is my department. Go away. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I do love that in drama sometimes not having to worry about everything all the time. You can see something happening and you can go, Oh, this is happening over there. You might want to look at that and then walk away and go and have your, <laughs> go and have your cup of tea and you can just sit there and watch it unfold. It's quite fun. Do you tend to work with the same team in your crew and also um, say camera people and directors and stuff? Do you, do you tend to follow people around in like a little group? Uh, yeah, so in terms of uh, people that I like working with uh, from a sound team point of view, there's a, a guy that I use called Simon Gill, who is, again, luckily one of the best boom ops I've ever worked with. I don't think he quite realises how good he is. Oh, that's good. That's a good person to have. Yeah, and his attention to detail and his knowledge of what's going on is is excellent. So. Uh, where possible, I will always try and work with Simon. Uh-huh. And then on the more documentary side of things, where it's just myself and a cameraman, there's probably two or three camera guys that I I would prefer working with. Um, that's Tom Pridham, I think you know as well. I do, know him very and, well. Uh, a guy called Tom Hayward. Um, and Tom Hayward, I, I get quite a bit of the um, sort of the more documentary side of things. Um, and Tom Pridham is a bit more of the sort of drama-based stuff. So it's a, there's a nice mix, and it's it's probably for me it's key is who you're working with. Yeah. Um, you know, I could be on the worst possible job in the world, but if if you're with somebody that you get on with and you enjoy being around, it it makes life so much easier, and then it becomes sort of kind of an us against the world type situation. Yeah, exactly that. <laughs> which is where the which is where the fun kind of is really it's in the the personal relationships rather than the the job you know yeah no, i agree completely so do you do you tend to um just physically how you how you get your work do you tend to get your work through uh camera guys that you know or do you get uh, approached directly from production managers and producers or does it kind of work both ways um from a sound recorder's point of view it's mainly via 
the cameraman. Okay. So that would be by the, the two Toms um, or a couple of other guys. There's, I do get some work from my um, diary service link line. Okay. Um, but the, I would say the majority of it comes through word of mouth from the, the camera operators. Okay. So, yeah, who you know. Who you know all the time. So just sort of to, to, to try and wrap things up a little bit, um, what's next for you? What uh, what does the future hold for James Kenning? Ah, the future. Good Lord. I haven't got a clue. Um, well, I, I kind of do and I don't. I mean, um, I'm as, as you are waiting for the next yeah. film job, um, and I can't see the TV industry that you and I know getting back to any sort of reality until maybe March next year. Yeah. Um, I think possibly heading for another spike in the, in the virus. So, uh, yeah, I think from a filming point of view, it'll be very, very sporadic. Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, for me, I've had a project on the back burner for the last five years, which has been a, um, a new shaving product. Okay. Which I've literally launched two weeks ago, um, which basically um, eliminates razor burn and razor rash, which is a problem that I've suffered from for oh, years. Okay. Um, and it's, you know, highly eco-friendly. It's all refillable. Um, so it gets rid of waste yeah. products as well. So that's that's kind of on the back burner, just bubbling along, trying to get some form of income in. I think as an industry, I, d- I don't think it's enough. Yeah just to just to be a sound recordist or a you know prop person it's it's not it, there's there's just not enough um sustainability in it you know it's it's the work's too sporadic um so i think people need a backup plan yeah i agree i think it's good to have that and like i said before every year i say i'm gonna do something for the winter or try and think of a side hustle as people call it and you know, because I think you're right. There are probably, maybe, maybe even not, maybe not, but um, maybe there's just a handful of people that can rely on this job all year round. Really, people who are lucky enough to be in a comfortable enough position through their work or through other things to be able to survive solely on, you know, at the whim of production managers calling you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you are at this exactly that. You are. I I am at the the whim of the cameraman. Yeah. So you you know if if they haven't got any work, I don't have any work. Yeah. Um, so you, you really are reliant on somebody else to provide you with food for your table. That's it, and you know it gets to the point where that becomes only so manageable. And yeah, we all have to start thinking. You know, for me, I've definitely started thinking about other things to do, and I'm not expecting any work any time this year. And even if in the spring it kicks off again, I'm definitely not counting on it. I'm you know, not planning financially on having it. So that leads to what else can we do? How can we transfer our skills? I mean, I'm not certain there's a whole lot of crossover with sound recording and shaving cosmetics, but <laughs> no, absolutely none whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. My transferable skills are very small as well. I can, I can gaffer tape things very quickly that, so you can't see them, but you know, they'll fall down within 10 minutes. I've always thought about what the, you know, what our transferable skills are and, it always kind of, for me, harps back to the the thing that everybody that I've ever met in the industry is good at logistics. Yeah. 
ironically, except for some of those in production where that should be kind of number one on their list, really. Yeah. <laughs> but at, at our level, the, the logistical side of what we do on a day-to-day basis down to a moment-by-moment basis, yeah, our logistical skills are a lot higher than we possibly give ourselves credit for. Yeah, I agree. So I, I think that's a, a skill that possibly for those of us that are in the industry should should think about. That's true. And it's it's ironic really that becoming being adaptable and being able to sort of roll with the punches and find new ways of doing things is our skill set. And it's pretty much exactly what we need to apply right now outside of work because do you know what I mean? We need to find new ways of earning money now rather than new ways of hiding microphones and tape and props and all this stuff. And now we need to just, yeah, just to survive, we need to find new ways of earning. But anyway, okay. So shave.co.uk. There you go. <laughs> I'll put a link to your website in the uh, show notes in case anyone didn't pick that up. But anyway, yeah, I think that brings us to a nice closing point. And thank you so much, James, for coming on. That's and a pleasure. Anytime you like. Okay. It's been good fun. I'll hold you to that. Thank you, mate. Cheers. Buddy, thanks. Bye. Bye. Hello, me again. Um, so that was James Kenning, and I think again another fascinating interview with someone who's really experienced in TV. So you know, you're very lucky. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so all that leaves me to say is. Remember to subscribe to us, uh, give us a rating, five stars if you think we deserve it. Tell your friends and share us online. And I will see you next week. Thanks for listening.